Hello and welcome to e-commerce uncovered. I'm your host Matt Lady. Welcome back if you're a, a long-time listener and welcome if this is your first time. Appreciate you either way. Each and every week I get to chat with and learn from a wide variety of passionate and intelligent founders, operators, and practitioners in the wonderful world of e-commerce. My mission is to help you build a business and lifestyle that makes sense for you. Today's episode is with the President and Chief Operating Officer of Bamboo Earth, a beauty brand that prides itself on real skincare with real ingredients to help you embrace the beauty that exists inherently inside of you. Without further ado, please welcome Dave Recook. Dave, how's it going, man? Very good. Thanks for the intro, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Long-awaited, lots of messages on Twitter. Finally on the mic, uh, excited to chat today about all things uh, paid growth, forecasting, financials, and how to make sense of it all and how to uh, make it make sense for your brand. So let's start with why. Why is it so important? And what? why is it so important? First one, and then I'll ask you again. Uh, like, where do we start? Like, what's the number? What's the biggest thing that you see with other brands? That's like a big, big mistake. That's like pretty obvious. So first, why is it so? Why is all this so important? Yeah. So the the finance side of the business, just generally. Um, <coughs> of course, I have to cough right now. Um, anyway, so uh, it, it is uh, so important because I see so many brands. <clears throat> that create growth that is ultimately unsustainable or, or unprofitable. And, um, and, that, and a lot of people think that is unique to venture-backed brands, but it's, it's absolutely not. There's, there's a lot of ways to delude yourself that things are going well, um, and they're not. So it, it's about understanding what your real goals are as a business, and then translating that to a day-to-day. Um, you know, to me, that that's that's smart financial operation in uh, in D2C or in e-commerce. Um, so that that's kind of the way I would summarize all of why it's so important to have a level of financial savvy or understanding in D2C because it's pretty easy to get pretty far in the business and then look down and what you've created is a cash sucking monster, really. Yeah, there's so many moving pieces. There's inventory, then there's payment terms, and then a lot of brands, almost everyone, has to spend more money to on ads to, you know, push the product to people. So there's For a lot sure. of moving pieces, a lot of uh, things to get mixed up. So what's um, what's like the? Uh, you said that it's a lot of brands can get started. They can go along and get pretty far. And right. Like, oh yeah, we're making money. Revenue's coming in, but then. Uh, What's what's one of the more common mistakes or like what is like the tipping point that starts to get people like really yeah. focused on their finances and have to like go back, maybe go backwards almost? Yeah, for sure. Um, so one of the things that make it a more difficult business than it's so direct to consumer e-commerce, I would put it as like a, you know, medium, medium high difficulty in terms of business models, right? Like it's not. It's not crushing. This isn't uh, like you're not starting an airline or like you know <laughs> like a car company or something, but it is it is very difficult in the sense that um, you know let's take a look like a beginner business model of like starting a service business, um, and especially the, generally the entry ramp to that is very often freelancing. So like there's there's scary components of that. Like you're going out on your own. Like entrepreneurship in general has scary components, right? You're going out on your own. But ultimately, you're seeing money come in for your time to start, 
and then it's being broadened into an agency. So like take that as like sort of a beginner type business model. And generally speaking, the cash inflows match the cash outflows. So like you understand when you're first freelancing that your paycheck is your invoice from your clients. You care a lot about collecting that, right? So like you, you get that. That's literally going in your pocket. Then when you move to agency mode, it's, it, it's the parallel there is, okay, well now I need to pay somebody else and I have somebody on my payroll and I have payroll going out and I need to keep staying on top of those invoices and I need to make sure that money's coming in as it's going out. So a cash basis and an accrual basis doesn't really look all that different in a service business. <clears throat> in a product-based business or a direct-to-consumer business, and really product-based is what makes it different, is you're typically buying your inventory in bulk. So you're laying out, I mean, $50,000. There's plenty of people out there laying out $150,000, $200,000, even for small businesses because that's the minimum order quantity that they have to do to get that unique product that they're bringing to market. Um, so they're laying out all this money, but ultimately that's not, that, that cost is detached from when you're getting the benefit of it. So that's, that's, that creates this big difference from a cash basis, which cash basis means it's a type of accounting where you measure it at the time that the cash is coming into or leaving your account. So it's, it's your bank account. Cash went out the door on a cash basis, that's an expense. Cash came in, that's a revenue on a cash basis. But generally speaking, product businesses are running on, on an accrual basis and that's where it makes sense, right? Like, so I lay out $50,000 for inventory, I'm a brand new business, I'm gonna be selling that off over six months, right? So I'm spreading that, that cost out over those months as I'm selling the product, as, as the benefit to it is accrued. That's exactly where accrual comes from. So you have this detachment of cash basis versus accrual basis, and that to kind of, I, I don't even wanna just say beginning operators, to really all levels of operators can be a difficult thing to tackle men mentally. And there's consistently that disconnect. Um, over time, you can develop systems and understanding to help you be more diligent about staying on top of those differences. Uh, but that's definitely the one thing that that is easy to, to delude yourself into because it makes sense that you have to lay out money for more inventory, right? You're reinvesting in your business. And a lot of a lot of solo entrepreneurs think about that next inventory as reinvesting to their business. <clears throat> and they do this really wholesome thing of like holding back, like I'm barely paying myself anything, I'm living off scraps, I'm investing in myself, investing in my business. And then the hard thing is that on the back end of that, they realize that the investments into their business was really just poor cash flow, right? And they're at a point where no matter how fast they grow, in fact, if they grow faster, it worsens it because they have more inventory needs, right? So early on understanding the difference between cash basis, accrual basis, and, and kind of how to bridge that gap um, is is really important because that's that's how you could delude yourself into believing, hey, on an accrual basis, I look good, I'm growing, etc. Um, but on a cash basis, I never seem to materialize those profits that keep showing up on paper. Um, and actually, Warren Buffett has a saying, uh, I'm always weary or something along those lines, I'm always weary of, of businesses that create such pretty profits 
uh, but I can't ever seem to realize the cash. It's something to that effect that he, he never likes businesses that create pretty profits on paper that he can't realize the cash. Um, so a lot of small businesses have that kind of um, run into that scenario, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, you laid it out pretty dang well. Uh, and I, I was even able to follow and understand the difference. <laughs> I'm still learning about all this. So that's really cool. That's a really good start. And it's kind of sets the tone. So how, how would you've put out some like really in-depth threads on Twitter the last year or two uh, about some of these different things. And one of them was from, uh, I think last year, it was like this pretty in-depth, like working capital and in- income sheet, balance sheet, cash flow. Um, I think I kind of want to start on that and um, really try to like, how do <laughs> Uh, if I'm a six-figure brand owner and I've made a few hundred thousand in my first couple of years and I'm starting to like, okay, there's more momentum, there's progress, um, I'm, but I'm trying to like take things more seriously and I've, I'm realizing the need and the, and the desire to need to focus on my finances more. So yeah. what's this income sheet versus balance sheet versus cash flow? And then how, how important is that? And that, what do we use from those? to look at forecasting and projections and then we're going to tie it into paid ads so sure let's start so, there. Let, so let's actually let's start with the, the three major sheets and okay. uh and to, uh, the three major financial documents quickly talk about what they are yeah and then talk about kind of like because you open the door a little bit to the working capital and it, which i think i'd like to tie a little bow on for all the listeners um so um, let's start with, the, so the, the thread that Matt is talking about is actually pinned to my Twitter profile. So if anyone after this, I don't know if you link my profile or whatever. I'll link, I'll link it. Okay. Uh, so uh, go check that out because uh, it's great, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but no, it does lay it out in a way that is uh, sometimes difficult to totally digest via audio. Um, so, but let me see if I can, uh, I can do this via voice. So. Um, what I lay out in the thread is that there are three major kind of financial documents. Um, so you've got your income statement or often referred to as your P&L, um, so profit and loss, which again, for product-based businesses are typically run on an accrual basis. So that means that your costs are being recorded at the time that they're, util- they're re- um, incurring the benefit, right? So like my product cost is being recorded when it's sold not when I purchase it, okay? So that's the difference of accrual uh, versus cash. So your income statement, again, we just talked about this. You can look profitable from an income statement perspective, but your money keeps getting sucked back in the inventory. So your income statement is a reflection of your business's engine, how well you are operating, how well the engine is running over, over a given period of time. So you can look at your P&L for last month, for, for June at the time of this recording, and, and say, here's how the engine ran for the month of June. So it's a recap of a, a time period, right? Your balance sheet is really a snapshot in time. So um, you, would, you wouldn't ask somebody how your checking account balance looked in June, because that's just a weird question. We're like, what do you mean it rose and fell and rose and fell? Like, you know? But you could ask me, what is your account balance on June 31st? So a balance sheet is a snapshot in time and it's a summary of your 
um, your business's finances. So what assets you hold, what liabilities you have, your cash balance, etc. Okay. So you've got something that represents the P&L represents your operation over a period of time. Balance sheet is a snapshot in time. And then lastly, you have your um, cash flow planning, uh, cash flow forecast, which is showing the money in and money out of actual transactions. So again, this now is on a cash basis. So what I had to pay a PO for inventory money went out the door. Okay. I received a, a distribution from Shopify, from Amazon, whatever money came in the door. Not just that somebody that something was purchased today, but Shopify actually issued the payout. Like I got the money. Okay. So those are the, the major differences. And just going back to the idea that we talked about inventory is this major driver of this like difference between cash and accrual. And so what I model out in the thread is showing how a growing brand on an income statement level can continue to turn, say, a 10% EBITDA or a 10% net income, but the money can get continually sucked back into inventory. Because as you're growing, you have to lay out larger and larger purchase orders in advance for your inventory. So the way you can start to address this problem, like you have multiple different levers, levers that you can pull that reduce the, um, the issue, so to speak. Reduce the problem of all your profits getting sucked back into that additional work and capital needed to grow your brand. So one, you could just be straight up more profitable, like just just get good, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> like uh, so, like at the uh, income statement level, uh, your your what you bottom line, you could bottom line twenty percent instead of ten percent, and then less of your money in total is getting sucked back into inventory. So that's one pretty freaking hard. I mean, all of these are hard. None, none of these are easy. This is not an easy game. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you any different. So first one, just increase your profitability on your income statement. Second one is um, increase the speed that you turn over your inventory. So talk to your supplier. Can they ship you smaller batches? Like, hey, I've got a good history with you. Instead of making my MOQ a thousand units, can you make it 500? Because I want to turn them over in two or three months instead of six months, right? So if I'm turning over the inventory faster, it means my batch purchases are smaller. So I'm going out less in advance in order to, to purchase it, okay? So turn over inventory faster. And it can be smaller purchases. It could be, you know, whatever means you get to turning over that inventory faster. And again, a, a good way to do that is like a lot of suppliers like to, to bulk produce because that's efficiency. So they're like, I want to make this 10,000 units at a time because like that's when you got machine time or that's when I like set up people to do it. Say, okay, great, but only ship me and bill me for 5,000 and hold 5,000. Can you do that for me? I'm a good customer and I'm growing. Um, a lot of people don't even think to negotiate that, but you just cut your MOQ in half even though they've produced and you, are, you will ultimately be responsible for that. The cash isn't going out the door for the other half. So your, your turnover just doubled, okay, with just a request like that to a supplier. Um, second one is your payment terms. If you're paying up front, in advance, whatever, go back to them, ask to split payment. 50% up front, 50% on delivery. 50% up front, net 30 on the 50%. All of it net 30. All of it net 60, net 90. And actually, a lot of these things are more important to your cash flow then you getting another 5% discount, 
discount. So keep the discount. <clears throat> My margins look good. Give me terms instead. You know, and and go sit down, model it out in terms of cash flow forecast. But a lot of a lot of brands underestimate how important those terms are. And again, you can get different kinds of financing for this, but those financing comes comes with um, often uh, guarantees. Uh, they come with the cost of capital. With a vendor, um, if you default, eh, you know, it sucks. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's just kind of the, the price of doing business. So uh, it comes, it's much cheaper debt. It's preferable debt um, to to going out into the market. So that's, uh, that's another way to, to increase it. And then one of the last ways is sell in advance. Increase your accounts receivable. So it, you could be selling wholesale and you just negotiate better terms with your retailers. Um, or you could pre-sell some things, um, whether you just start pre-selling it before you start to receive the inventory, get in the habit of pre-selling it two weeks early before you receive the inventory, or um, you could even pre-sell new product launches. That I did a lot of that at Modern Fuel because um, it helped absorb the, the cost of introducing a new product and make it more possible from a cash perspective. So I just wanted to tie a quick bow on that for those listening that said like, yeah, there's a problem, but like, what's the solution? Um, so hopefully that, that helps. Yeah, it did, it did help. Um, my best, <laughs> my favorite piece of advice is just get good. Just get better. Yeah, right. That's, that's, uh, super actionable. <clears throat> so just get better at life and business. Um, <clears throat> uh, okay. So, uh, you mentioned, uh, in your, th- in that same thread that you kind of talked about these things that, uh, and you just now mentioned it again, it's like the, uh, the carrying of inventory and like the sell through. So, uh, in one of the examples you gave, uh, you could, your business could be growing and you're making more revenue, but your cash conversion cycle, which is, it could be decreasing or like negative at, at times even. Right. So how do you find a balance? How do you control that? How do you project against those different scenarios? Like now let's try to like take what we're doing and apply it a little bit. Is there like a good, better, best situation, which you're like looking at stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, so what I'm, what I model out there is really for people to understand the overall concepts, but I do think it's really important for, uh, run a 13 week cash flow forecast. Like, you can Google 13-week cash flow forecast. There's templates out there. It's basically track money in, track money out, and project it for the next 13 weeks, which is a quarter. And really go live in that. Like the best operators that understand how to operate on both a uh, um, uh, an accrual profitable basis as well as a cash flow basis and manage their business well from a cash basis – Go live and understand that they're, they're 13 week cash flow forecast. And we, we, we run one as well. Um, that will give you a great idea of when money's going out, when it's coming in, and understanding when you're going to have money in your pocket. So being able to optimize that, that cash flow forecast and show a better balance throughout the year so that you're able to take some money off your business to defer some of those costs while you're growing um, are important. And uh, this is actually where forecasting and some of those other things come into play here is you might be thinking, okay, great. I'm placing an order. I can turn this over in three months and then I'll go place another order. And then it takes you five months to turn it over because sales aren't as good, right? And the the this this, this gets into the forecasting of your overall company and that particular product. 
a lot of um, business owners and entrepreneurs don't go through the exercise of what is the downside of being too high and what is the downside of being too low. There's kind of like FOMO of like, I'm growing. I don't want to ever tell people that this is backordered or out of stock, um, which is like, okay, fine. That means that you're operating at like an 80th, 90th percentile forecast of optimism, right? Like if you never want to tell people this is out of stock, you're running at like an extremely optimistic forecast, right? Like 80th or 90th percentile outcome where where the only scenarios are like in your wildest 10% of your dreams, you're beating your forecast, right? So if you're running your business that way, that means that 90% of the time you're losing to your forecast. And, and like a, probably at least half the time losing to it badly, right? Like, <clears throat> so I think it's important to weigh the consequences of ordering too much or ordering too little and play it through. So there are also consequences of ordering too little if you have fixed costs, right? Like, so like, let's say you've graduated the stage where you've got a couple people on payroll, you yourself need to take home money and you run out of product and you've still got to pay people. So like there is downside to ordering too little. I get that. Um, but I also think that very often in forecasting, what we do is we take the current trajectory and just project it. So like, like things are looking up, forecast goes da, 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 and just like continues to go up, right? And then things are looking down, da, 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 da. things are never gonna get better, this is gonna be horrible, right? Like we just take like the current, like probably like two week trend and then just project it for 24 months <laughs> and call that logical. Um, so, Something I really like to do is I like to write down my forecasts, put down the actuals next to it, and track how often I'm, I'm over or under. And I like to, when I build a forecast, say what percentile I'm building it for. So for cash planning, I'll do a 40th percentile projection, which means 60% of the time I should beat it. It doesn't mean 90% of the time I should beat it, because if I'm doing that, then I'm too conservative, and it doesn't represent reality. 60% of the time I should beat that. For my inventory planning, I, I take a 60th percentile. So actually I have a delta there where I'm planning in our cash flow forecast of more conservative to make sure the money all works out. And then purchasing, I'm being a little bit more aggressive saying, I only want to be able to beat that 40% of the time because I want to have enough product here that I'm not lopping off all of my upside. And I actually track those and try to get better and better and better at forecasting over time. And, and understanding, because when you put those percentages in your mind and you can step back from being in the day-to-day -day of like the marketer that doesn't want to stock out and you can, can put on that hat of like, I'm a shareholder of an asset and think about the like upside and downside of this. If somebody told you, you know, like, hey, here's your 40, uh, 40th percentile cash forecast and it didn't look great and you're the shareholder, you can go, hey, this isn't. I'm not operating smart. Like I need to cut costs. I need something needs to give here because worth writing a needle here. I don't want a 40% chance that I'm going to have this, you know, out of, out of bank balance. So I think that being able to do those kinds of forecasts, remove yourself from the day to day, um, remove yourself emotionally from like your current trajectory and track that is a great way to kind of tie a bow on this, like, um, this forward-looking planning of both forecasting as well as uh, cash flow. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely, man. 
Um, and it's, it's the cool perspective of you had of the 90% outco- uh, percentile outcome and only 10%. Like, you explaining all that was neat. It was, uh, it was cool to see. And how, on a cash basis, you said 40%. And then uh, the other one was 60%. So it's like you're trying to, like, yeah. balance it out. So um, that's really cool. So now how... We, we got these statements. We got the 13-week planning uh, for mm-hmm. the forecast. Now, how do we go and, like, what do we, how do we take these numbers, these metrics, these, like, the way of thinking? How do we translate like, that into, like, a Facebook ad account? And how do we do that against different SKUs, against different bundles, like, different offers? Yep. Like, like let's, let's start getting into that more. Great, now. great question. So I think that, and in this, now, this section now more, like so what I everything I just said really applies to like um, owner or executive level like where owner shareholder executive level where like those are the people that are going to be concerned with all the things that I just mentioned as well as you know maybe like accountant or financial folks um, this section from here on out I would say is um, something that I think more marketers should more deeply understand because I think it gives you a better sense of how to operate and drive the results that shareholders are looking for, right? So um, the easiest, there's two frameworks I wanna talk about that I think give you like good mental models from which you can like operate more smartly, I don't, more smartly, more informed, I don't know, just smarter. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first, first mental model is on an accrual basis, like. So I just complicated it a lot, again, for the finance side. That's the model of reality that exists for a cash basis. On an accrual basis is really where you need to mostly tell your marketers to to operate profitably, right? Like you may need to say, hey, we need to do a pre-sale, but they still need to be thinking about an accrual basis because you can kick your debts down the road, but ultimately, if you aren't running profitably on an accrual basis, you're running what is basically a Ponzi scheme, <laughs> okay? Your bar, your, today's, uh, you know, income is, uh, revenue in is paying for yesterday's debts and so on and so on. So unless you get the accrual basis running profitably, you're eventually gonna run into a problem, right? So mostly you want your marketers thinking along those lines. So you can simplify the model overall into essentially a top half and a bottom half of a P&L. So top half of your P&L, um, roughly, typically has your your revenue, your cost of that revenue, your cost of delivery, which includes your product, uh, the fulfillment costs, shipping to the customer, et cetera. And you'll also have an advertising and marketing section, right? After that, your subtotal off of that, on uh, some P&Ls, you might call that adjusted gross margin. Um, on, on a per unit basis, you'd call it contribution margin. So revenue minus all the variable costs associated with putting that product in your customer's hands. So variable costs being the cost of the product, the cost of pick and pack of fulfillment, shipping, returns, payment processing, and advertising, okay? But not your staff. So keep your staff out of that. <clears throat> so you have that contribution margin. So that that is a great way to think about how to the operation that I do in the marketing side, I want to create contribution margin dollars, okay? And then ultimately what, instead of, don't think about it strictly as percent, 
dollars. How can I add new, new dollars to this, okay? And then the bottom half is largely your fixed expenses or your operating expenses. So like, Matt, you're running a brand. You've got to take home some money to put, keep a roof over your head, et cetera. Like you need a salary, right? So you're paying yourself a salary. You've hired two people that you're, you're also paying. You have contractors. You have, um, you gotta, gotta pay the piper with Shopify, all the apps, you know, et cetera. So you've got this fixed cost. Let's say you've got like twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month of a fixed cost, whatever it might be. Um, that's your hurdle essentially for contribution margin in dollars. So now you know I need to go create. Let's say it's twenty thousand. I need to go create at least twenty thousand dollars of contribution margin every month or I'm not turning a profit. And now it's a rather simple like two halves kind of game, like you've taken a complex thing, broken it down, and you can you can translate, you can just say, hey, my, my fixed costs are $20,000, we've gotta clear that. Here's my gross margins for product, and I, I encourage people to constantly check in with their income statement and, and, and like make sure that represents reality, um, because like very often they'll just think like, okay, I'm just paying you know, $25 and I'm selling it for a hundred. So my gross margins are 75%. And they forget that all those other, the processing fees and the pick and pack and the shipping and you get nickel and oh, and I've got to pay freight in. And then I've got to, oh, there's shipping supplies and boxes. And so like you need it fully, fully freaking loaded. Okay. So that 75% might wind up being 60%. Good. Take the 60%. That's your gross margin. Okay. So that means that you've got that other 60% to work with in order to bring in customers. Now, if you bring in repeat customers, you probably didn't have to spend any money on it. Great, those are the highest contribution margin dollar customers you've got. And that's why it's really important to you know, stay on top of email, SMS, those sorts of things, because that brings in large amounts of contribution margin dollars. New customer acquisition, you've got that 60% to work within, and now it's a game of maximizing the dollar amount. I don't care whether you spend $55 and do it at a scale of 10 million, okay? Because that's gonna bring in a small percentage but a large dollar amount. Or you're doing it at five to one, 20%, and that's gonna bring you in 40% contribution margin and you don't need as much volume-wise to bring it in. Does that make sense? So you could play with that and really ultimately what you want to do, and this, this actually gets into a different thread of mine, which is your marginal spend. You want your next dollar to always be creating contribution margin dollars. And wherever you cut that off, that's your ideal spend. So, you know, let's say you're spending $10,000 a month and it's, it's creating profitable ads. If you try to take that to 20,000 and you look at that delta of saying like, well, at $10,000 a month, I created, uh, let's say, you know, $50,000 of revenue. And then the, the next $10,000, I poured that in and I only created $70,000 of revenue. Well, on that next $10,000, all you got was a two to one on your money. You know, So you're at, if you had 60% margins, you're barely scraping by. Any additional and you're probably throwing money out. So stop. You know, you've probably maximized contribution margin. Now you need to get more efficient before you could put more dollars in the system. So sometimes you have to go back to work on the system in order to make it efficient enough to put in more dollars. But so hopefully, as a lot of info I fired at you, but you seem like you're nodding along and feel yeah. good about the explanation. No, that's good. That's good. I think, um, yeah, it is. It's making sense. And that point about okay, yeah, we're at a five x at ten k a month. Let's let's bump. Let's spend more. And it's like okay, but really that second half 
uh, that second 10,000 when you're going up to 20k, if it's only getting you a 2 to 1, yeah, you could grow faster and spend more and get more volume in, but what I'm hearing is that that's usually, sometimes it's just not good, and then you're like not getting as much back, right? Well, and you just need to make sure that, like, because what a lot of people do is, all right, so the first one was 5 to 1, 10,000 for 50,000. Second one was 2 to 1. What most companies will do is say, okay, we brought in 70,000 and spent 20,000. We're still good. We're still at a 3.5 to 1. You are blended. Your whole, the whole thing is 3.5 to 1. Your first 10,000 was 5 to 1, and your second 10,000 was only 2 to 1. And you don't realize how close to not making money you are on the next dollar going into the system. And that is ultimately what you need to stay on top of and say, I, I called it marginal marginal return on your investment. And you're looking at that as in terms of the next dollar spent. If I put another dollar in the system, what's the return on that? Not my blended, what's the return on that? And so what I'm typically doing is I'm constantly sort of benchmarking myself against those spends. and subtract from the previous level of spend. So if I just, let's say I'm on $500 a day on Facebook and I'm like, cool, ratchet it up to 800 a day. And I had one week on 500, one week on 800, take the 800 week minus the 500 week. That's your marginal. That's the new marginal return on that $300 a day. Okay. And granted, there's some sampling problems here, some before and after but at least you're thinking along the right lines. You know, at least you're thinking about it in terms of how that new $300 do. I don't care if the blended is still profitable because I want to maximize the dollars, the contribution margin dollars. So if it starts to not bring in new contribution margin dollars, throw it out like, and stay you know, heavily focused on that. Because I think a lot of people chase the vanity metrics of scale, they want to feel bigger, larger, et cetera. Look, make a successful financial instrument and then you have time to figure out scale. Like uh, buying smart people, the time to work on good, hard problems is the most important thing that you could do. Uh, you know, not deluding yourself that you're already there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Solving the right problem is, uh, <laughs> that's a whole episode in its own, I think. But yeah. uh, going off of that a little bit, so. How it's, it depends widely by brand. So I, I'm trying to like bring it bring it in to make it digestible. How would you um, understand like lifetime value or subscriptions or reoccurring revenue or mm -hmm. like returning customers? How would you factor that in to either the financial model or this the forecasting part? Um, versus looking at only new customers. Like how do we start to think about that? Yeah. Uh, Matt, you, you're not going to believe it, but I have a Twitter thread on this. Uh, I don't know. Have you ever seen that app, the little blue bird? The little uh, blue no, bird? I, no, I've never heard of it. I do. I, I, so we're only going to talk about my Twitter threads today. Um, so, no, I also have – I should just link you the actual thread so you can put them in the show notes. Um, so – I, I gave a sort of a framework for how to think about LTV and uh, where logical cutoffs are because ultimately lifetime value is something that's realized over a, a period of time. And this is another space where if um, you're bootstrapped, you're turning over your cash, you can get in trouble. Essentially, if you're spending uh, 
cost per acquired customer, so CAC today, for future value, you just disconnected the payment and the cost again on a different level. So like we did it with inventory, but you could do it at the customer level too. And you've created a payback period where you now have to float the difference in terms of cash. So you could be optimizing for like getting paid back on month three, but that means that you now need to float three months worth of ad spend. And that just got sucked into the business. So more working capital requirements in terms of the business. So practically for bootstrapped growing DTC brands, there's other frameworks that you can use to think about this. And so we just talked about contribution margin and clearing your fixed cost. One of my favorite ones for this, let's say you have a subscription brand or a high LTV brand and you want to be able to consider this because not considering it means that you're really cutting off your growth. So what I would encourage somebody to do um, that has that sort of business is to target a particular contribution margin in dollars. So again, let's go back to like, you have $20,000 in fixed expenses. Let's say you wanna put a little buffer there, target $25,000 in contribution margin dollars, okay? So go ahead and you can spend beyond that because you've got excellent LTV, you know, let's say you're running a subscription business, you've got excellent LTV behind that, but what you're gonna do is that, what's gonna constrain your spend is that I need to bring in 25K of contribution margin dollars this month. And then beyond that, let's say if I were optimizing entirely just for contribution margin this month, I'd be able to bring in 40K, right? But instead, I'm gonna allow that next 15,000 to get sucked into the working capital of future profits, of creating, of pulling in future customers because I can afford it on a cash basis because I'm clear, I'm clearing my expenses, giving myself a little buffer and I'm going to allow a little bit more to get sucked into that. And if you're a growing subscription brand or growing LTV brand, that threshold continues to move up because you just deferred that $15,000. Presumably next month, they're going to come back and repeat like you'd planned. They're staying subscribed. You know, 80% of them are staying subscribed, etc. So now instead of you would have created $40,000 in a given month of contribution margin. Now it's 45,000 and you could put another 20,000 back into the machine. Um, and it gives you that option of like, well, no, I want to take, take the money. Like, you know, uh, thanks Regis. Like I'm good. Uh, you know, uh, take the money or reinvest the money into future growth. So that's like, that's a logical framework is like contribution margin dollar target is, is a way to think about that. Um, there's other frameworks. Again, uh, I uh, will link the thread and you can read through it and see which one works for you as a as business owner. But that's probably the most logical target for somebody that is um, bootstrapped, cash funding it themselves and, and growing but has significant LTV. Sweet. Yeah. No, thanks for explaining that. And yeah, all the threads will be uh, in the show notes. Um, okay. So then knowing all of that, and we are trying to get more contribution dollars and someone spending more money and having a bigger order can lead to more contribution dollars. Like if you have a higher AOV, a higher bundle, mm-hmm. that, that generally does lead to more contribution dollars, but doesn't always. So what are some ways or what are the levers to pull? How do we think about 
honing in on those contribution dollars. And this ties in with a pretty much similar question to what Taylor Holiday uh, from CTC has asked uh, from Twitter. Nice. Um, is what would need to be possible in order to double your revenue and maintain your margin next month? Nice. And then Love what it. is the biggest hurdle to realizing that possibility? So it's it's kind of along that the same line. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So to, I, I yeah. let me treat that as a two part uh, okay. question. Uh, Taylor Taylor nicely loaded <laughs> up some some real uh, uh, ammo there for you. Um, so <laughs> the first question, what I what I think is really really important that very 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 few operators actually intimately understand is understand the dynamics of your cost on fulfilling a given order so i super super encourage you to model this out in excel um i do and it's very enlightening in in how you create offers because you can create win-win offers where the customer gets a discount and you get more margin so something that i do is i build this in um if you're working with a 3PL, uh, so third-party logistics for fulfilling your orders, you probably have a billing structure where you have a per-order pick amount. Let's say it's $2. It's $2 to, pick, to get anything off the shelf and send it to a customer, okay? And then it's another $0.30 cents per item after that, right? Again, just picking numbers out of a hat. So you've got a flat amount of $2 no matter what I pick off the shelf and then $0.30 cents after that. And a lot of companies, if you worked with them and said, hey, I'm going to sell this this common bundle of three or four, we can pre-kit beforehand and you'll only charge me the $2 and you'll lessen that fee. Um, so there's ways to get around even that additional 30 cents. But you've got that fixed amount to put in their hands. Next, think through the shipping cost. It's pretty much impossible to put something in somebody's hands that is, you know, small item sized or bigger for less than three and a half bucks. Like, Three and a half, four bucks, something like that, right? So you've got a base like amount of putting something in somebody's hand. Generally speaking, unless you're working with a really voluminous or really heavy product, adding number two isn't super quickly going to jack up your postage. So uh, modern fuel, I have got two pens on my desk. Um, putting pen number one in your hands, let's say it's four bucks, okay? Putting pen number two in your hands, still four bucks, okay? Hasn't changed. It didn't, it didn't increase my weight at all. It pretty much is the same postage to get in your hands. I paid the $2 pick and pack. The only thing more I paid, and this is only because I didn't bother to pre-kit it or wasn't popular enough, was another 30 cents. Okay, so you've got the full cost of goods, but that cost of delivery component has some fixed and variable cost to it, okay? So model this out because what I did on Modern Fuel is I gave... 50 bucks, uh, so I sell luxury pens and pencils on Modern Fuel. So I sold them for $150, $200. I gave $50 off your second unit. The take rate was insane. It was a 40% take rate. So you're buying a luxury pen or pencil for 200 bucks and you're coerced into buying number two at a 40% rate. So even though I had $150 to $200 items, I had close to a $240 average order value. So... And, but with that, I also was able to push up the margin with the overall order as well, because a, a good portion of the cost had to do with actually putting it in the customer's hands. So thinking through, how do I create win-win offers that people are likely to take that they want to take based on my fixed versus variable cost of the unit 
the, the order economics. So that is one of the most neglected ways that you can win in e-commerce. And slice it every way you can. $10 off your second unit. 50, see how I did a flat fee off the second unit instead of a percentage off? Represent it as a percentage off both. Represent it as a flat dollar off the second unit. Represent it as a percentage off the second unit. I represent it as a uh, buy two, get one free. So there's there's a variety of different ways. Like I just described four ways you can frame a, a volume discount on the same product. You could also frame a gift with purchase. Take a smaller item, make it a gift with that. So that you could wind up, we used to give engraving uh, for when we were struggling on ads, give engraving for free. The additional cost was almost nothing and the conversion bump almost always uh, smashed it. So there's different ways that you can take additional items or enhancements to that item or order and create a win-win scenario where you can dramatically move your advertising percentage as a cost of your revenue without affecting your 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 gross margin significantly. So that's that's the other model that I encourage marketers and owners to be much more intimate with and really, really understand how they can create those win-win offers. All right, so what was Taylor's, what was Taylor's question? That, no, that's great. That was good. I'm glad you, you, I'm glad you got that one first. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I load up too many uh, fire offers. Yeah, that's so okay. We'll reload here. Um, what, would, what would you need to be possible in order to double your revenue and maintain your margin the ne in next month? So, yeah. you, so June, we made 100 grand. Cool. In July, we want to make 200 grand, but at the same uh, margin. Right. So, what same like, so, so like same contribution margin, let's say. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you, you did $100,000 in revenue and you made like, let's say 40K in contribution margin. And next month you want to do 200K in revenue and 80K in contribution margin. Um, love the question. So because what Taylor is getting at is that there, there's a common trade-off of volume versus efficiency. So like we talked about that, we talked about like the marginal spends. So you, in, in the initial example where we talked about marginal spends, you, you spent $10,000, got 50,000. The next $10,000, you only got 20,000. So you have that deteriorating margin. So that's what Taylor's talking about. In our example now, you brought in $100,000 and you had 60,000 total in cost, whether that's ad spend and you know product. And he's saying, hey, if you're going to go bring in $200,000, that's like, that's a step function. That's a large amount more. And you're probably going to hit those diminishing returns in terms of efficiency. So there's a couple, a couple ways you can wind up doing this. So um, let's assume uh, we're using social advertising as one of the main vehicles. So like you take like a Facebook, Instagram or a TikTok um, or even a YouTube, um, something that is demand creation rather than demand capture. Um, so first of all, if you're a store that has more than one item, and you're primarily winning on one, add another pipe as we refer to it. So um, again, we can go back to Modern Fuel. The pencil, the click pencil was a, a big workhorse on Modern Fuel and we introduced a bolt action pen and that introduced a new pipe for us in terms of, um, I don't have to change any of my spend on, on pencil. That's good, leave it alone. That's bringing in me this money. Now I've got bolt action pen, now go Go to market and bolt action pen, figure out the same return and run that. That may or may not, like maybe you had that initial hero product. It might take you two or three to match that initial product, but ultimately you're building you're building on additional pipes, so to speak, that, um, that are matching that original pipe. So you could do it on a product horizontally with product is one, is one way. 
Um, way number two is horizontally with audience. So um, what is the angle and who are you targeting on that first $100,000 of revenue? So uh, Bamboo Earth, like let, let's jump to, uh, to Bamboo Earth. Um, we're, you know, let's say we're targeting, uh, you know, women in their 40s and 50s concerned with aging gracefully on, on that first ad. Okay, that's great. Like that's over here. Well, guess what? Like let's go target working moms in their 30s here and come up with something that is a more um, about skincare on a, like a time budget, right? Like you've only got five minutes to look good, look your best in five minutes, okay? And I will tell you for sure, the women that are 55 do not care how long it takes. They, okay, 30 minutes, don't care. All I want to do is make sure that I'm aging aging well, that I, like length length of, of the routine does not matter to them. However, I'm a working mom, like I've got, I got, you got three minutes of my time, make it worth worthwhile because like that's all I got. Okay, so you want to talk to them about that time budget and and using one, two, three products to make it work. So you've got essentially this one working pipe. You're making your hundred thousand dollars off of it. I'm gonna go. Tar- I'm gonna go create a creative or an angle that is gonna go target a new audience, and I'm gonna hold it to the same threshold that I held pipe number one two or angle number one two. So scaling horizontally with product is one way to do it. Scaling horizontally with with angles or targets. So ultimately, I'm. I'm defining who the target is that I want to go after, and then I'm creating an angle to hit them. So I might have this like 40 to 50 year old that's working and I've got that angle again. So like I could go at them with a new angle because there are probably people in that audience. I mean, 40 to 50 year old females in the United States, pretty freaking broad, like still. So I could still go after them and say, um, you know, it could be talking about rosacea, sun damage, protecting yourself in the summer. Um, instead of talking about dry skin or dehydration or whatever. So I could just be going at the same audience with a different angle because it's going to self, um, self-select, self right? Or if I really want to, I could talk, talk to actually to totally new group of people and create an angle that goes after that. But in either case, again, <clears throat> we use a cost per result or cost cap structure in our ad accounts so that we're able to hold that to a particular return on investment. Um, and so... The main way that you're going to ultimately do this is not just continue to scale the dollar amount and budget on that one cap because presumably you've already rode that to your contribution margin dollar maximum. What you now need to do is now go create a new pipe that you can then fine tune to its contribution margin dollar maximum. Yes, and while still like in this hypothetical scenario, actually having the cash in the inventory to be able to just sure. jump up a hundred K in revenue and now, cost. now, so, so the, the thing about that though, is it does depend on the way you do it. So like if you're introducing a new product that is a cash, so like if you take Taylor's uh, question and extrapolate it to also cash, then the best way to do it is keep selling the same item and create a new angle that is targeting a new demographic that has, you're, you're finding like prom again, don't be afraid of being like extremely specific on your ads. Pain point one, go kind of twist the knife. Here's the solution. Pain point two, different group of people that may be suffering from pain point two compared to pain point one, and go paint that solution in in that in that ad and go you know separate them because then presumably you're actually with volume you're actually probably enhancing your your turnover rate like especially if the main constraint here is minimum water quantity. Well, like I just 
took you from 100,000 to 200,000. So we just cut your turnover in half, you know? So you actually kind of make it better from a cash perspective. So if cash is really the constraint, the creative angles is better than new product introduction. Nice, yeah. Cool. Um, and then uh, do you think you are good with your answer so far with what is the biggest hurdle to realizing that possibility or is there anything you wanna add on top of that um, so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think to, this question mainly is getting at that the biggest hurdle is that new dollars in your next dollar is typically less efficient than the previous dollar so like that's a generalization it's generally true there are times when you can suspend that and that like actually the very early stages of a facebook account like if you can't exit learning your next dollar actually might be a little bit more efficient because if you can use your next dollars to exit the learning phase of of an ad set then you can actually experience more efficiency than the, those initial dollars. But assuming you're out of that and you're now reaching that next audience, the, the biggest hurdle is the fact that the next dollar into the system is typically less and less and less efficient. And that's where that, <clears throat> that new pipe, whether it be creative product, whatever it is, it can even be offered by the way. So like go put together a new bundle and then that's, it kind of self creates a new pipe. Um, of people that are interested in that bundle and start selling that, um, <clears throat> which is commonly what we'll do. Um, so product offer, creative angle is the way you go create that that new pipe. Ultimately, again, you're suspending gravity for a period of time. Like you will eventually get to levels where enough people know about Bamboo Earth that you're really having difficulty reaching that next marginal buyer but at the scale that we're talking about, if we're talking about like in the six, seven, even low eight figure range, that really isn't, is mostly not your problem. Mostly the problem is that that small pipe that you've created is hitting diminishing returns and you need to go create additional ones. Awesome, okay, cool. All right, glad you added to that. Um, landing the plane here, last question from another t uh, friend on Twitter, I uh, believe Yehuda from uh, Fun Story HQ asks, uh, do you, Dave, prefer revenue-based financing, line of credit, or what are your thoughts on those two, or if there's another thing you want to throw in here? Uh, <clears throat> I'm open to all of the above. Uh, I like money and having it and not not having it. You know, so um, one of the, the, the main benefits of uh, revenue-based financing are that, t so like if we talk about like, uh, debt that's accessible to you as an owner, the amount and the rate that you're paying or the cost of it are the two components. A lot of revenue-based financing will offer you a larger amount than typical line of credits, um, especially at the small business size, uh, six, seven, and into low eight figures. You have to get to relatively significant sizes in order to be able to get a line of credit without personally guaranteeing it. So actually, so let, let's break this down into three components. You have amount, um, rate or, or cost, and then what guarantees are associated with it. Typically as a business owner, I wanna avoid personal guarantees because that actually creates that separation between individual and LLC or incorporation or whatever, so that my LLC is actually acting as that financial shield or legal shield that it's supposed to be, and I'm not letting that get pierced by a personal guarantee. Um, so assuming personal guarantees are off the table, because if they're on the table, just go mortgage your house. Uh, it's the cheapest capital that you can get. I'm actually serious. 
so if you're going to guarantee the money, they, they guarantee it regardless and can come after you regardless. So you might as well put up the thing that gets you the cheapest rate. So if you're going to use a line of credit against your house or go mortgage it or second mortgage, whatever. Um, again, uh, use sparingly and wisely. Uh, and I prefer to avoid the personal guarantee type stuff um, for either myself as well as uh, anyone involved. Um, so revenue-based financing uh, often isn't secured, meaning secured, meaning like there's not collateral attached to it. Like you default on this and I, and I seize this piece of collateral. Um, often the way revenue-based financing works is they're skimming it directly from your payouts. So very often it's, it's hooking right into Shopify or whatever stream of revenue that you have, Stripe, Shopify, etc., and that's the way they feel good about this because you have a track record of bringing in money via Stripe or via Shopify, and I'm going to skim my 10% off a month before you ever before it ever hits your account. But I have no no guarantee. If your sales go to zero and I can't get my money, like they can't come after you. So the amount that they loan is typically pretty friendly. The per, the guarantees are typically pretty friendly, and the rates are, you know than what you pay. Uh, it's not great, uh, but business owners are happy to have it because the amount and without the personal guarantee really was a thing that was, that was a kind of a desert, you know, go back five, 10 years ago. Uh, there really wasn't that market um, for that. So line of credit gets more advanced. They need to know they're either securing it uh, in some way, either personally or against your asset. Um, they might not, it might be an unsecured line of credit, but then they're definitely going to want to know more financial things about you. Do you have a track record of operating profitably? The threshold, like they have to find a lender to match up against that. Um, so there are line, lines of credit out there. Um, and typically, if you can qualify for them, very often the um, cost is cheaper. Um, and it is a more true, like a typical APR rather than a fixed cost, which is the, the common uh, threshold for like a, or set up for a revenue-based financing. So it's really, I would just say, always separate your, if you're looking at financing, separate it in those three things. How much can I get? How much does it ultimately cost me? And put it in an annualized percentage so you can compare apples to apples. And then what, uh, what guarantees are associated with it or how is it secured? Um, and, you know, are you okay with all three of those? Awesome. That's a, yeah, great, great breakdown there for that question. Um, really good way to wrap things up. So Dave, any anything that you wanted to toss out before we, we uh, plug your Twitter profile, all of your threads and Bamboo Earth, or are you good so far? <clears throat> no, I think, I think that's good. Uh, we'll link the threads. You can dive into that. Uh, you can follow me on there uh, if you want some more gems uh, when I get around to tweeting them. Uh, sometimes sporadic, but... Eventually, I'll get there. Um, follow me on LinkedIn, and you should definitely check out Bamboo Earth. It's what gives me my beautiful, glowing complexion. <clears throat> Amazing. Thanks so much, Dave. Really appreciate your time. Thank everyone else. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back if you're a returning listener, and we'll catch you on the next episode.